I think God has got something special for us today. And the way that I can gauge that a lot of times in my life is, is how much the enemy tries to get on my back. And this week, I really feel like that he's tried to prevent me from preaching this message and he's tried to steal my joy. I set my alarm clock this morning. It didn't go off. I felt like that there was a weight on top of me throughout the week that I was just praying through and pushing through. And only thing I can come to is that he doesn't want you to hear what God's laid on my heart today. And we're going to rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name today because God's got something greater to say to us than what he could try to even steal from me. It's not about me. It's about what he's got to say. So as we come into the presence of God today, we can know that he's got something amazing for us today. So... To begin, I want to start with an example. Remember, we're talking about gates today. There's this man. I grew up in the 80s, in that terrible, dark generation of the 80s. There's a man in that generation who was kind of our hero. He was kind of our icon. His name was Michael Jordan. Now, he was incredible. In the last minute of the game, he's the guy that you'd want to give the ball to. He's the guy that you would want on your side. Now, I mean, granted, he, he hogged the ball a lot, but... He was ice cold when it counted most. He was the guy, right? But now, as I'm thinking about Michael Jordan, I want to ask you guys the question, who among you today has actually met Michael Jordan? How many of you have talked to him? How many of you just went out to eat lunch with him or played a game of pickup basketball with Michael Jordan? Probably none of you. Now, if I'm honest, that makes me want to doubt that Michael Jordan actually exists. None of you can give me any evidence that he exists. None of you have met him. So I, I want to feel justified today to say that Michael Jordan probably is just a figment of my imagination. He's probably just a special effect on a TV screen. He's probably just a myth. He's probably an icon that we created to get us through the 80s. Well, you say, Kendall, we can go to Deerfield, Illinois, and we can go to his house, and we'll probably get arrested, but I could prove to you that he exists. We could barge through the gate. And I said, no, you can't. You get to that huge gate, and you can Google the image. There's this monstrous gate with this huge 23 affixed to it, celebrating his legacy, but you can't see his house. You can't see Michael Jordan. You can press your face as hard as you want to up against that gate, and you will never see Michael Jordan. How do I know he exists? I don't. Sadly, as ridiculous as that sounds, a lot of people feel that way about God. They've driven up to the gates of the church, and because they weren't welcomed, and because the gates were locked, and because they weren't open to them and welcoming to them, they don't believe that the God who lives inside those gates, the God who lives inside that house, actually exists. You see, as Christians, sometimes we place obstacles in the way for people to see God. Sometimes we speak in a language that's exclusive. We say our, our Christian slogans and our sayings that kind of make us an inside thing, and, and what we're really doing is we're creating a large gate between us and the world. Sometimes we retreat from culture. Sometimes we, when we come to know Christ, we get new friends, and we don't watch the same movies. We don't listen to the same music. We don't do the same things. And Trust me, I, I guard my heart very closely, so I wouldn't tell you that it's okay for us to watch every single movie. We have to have wisdom in the things that we watch. But when we retreat wholesale from culture, what we communicate to culture is that there's a gap between us and you. That there's a difference and that we're an exclusive club. And a lot of times we, 
we kind of communicate the message that you're not welcome. You see, many people would rather not believe in God than conform to the image that they think that we've created. Now, if you're new today, I'm so glad that you're in this place, that you're in this house, because this is a church that's chosen to open wide our gates and open up to everybody. This is a church that's welcoming And I'm so thankful for that because this church is not going to close its gates to you. It's not going to kick you in the teeth when you've had a bad week, and it's not going to be afraid when you've got questions. You don't have to have everything figured out to be here because we're all in the same boat. You don't have to worry that we're going to be ashamed of you or that we're going to fear you because you've got sins because we all have sins. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Our heart is in everything that we want you to know the God who lives inside these gates. We want you to experience the God who lives inside this house. Because just like the psalm says, greater is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And that is because it's greater to be in the presence of God than anywhere else. So if you have questions today, he has answers. If you have hurts, he has healing. If you have sin, he can redeem it. If you have anything else... Today, it is greater to be in the house of God because he can handle anything that we have to bring to him. How do I know that? Because unlike Michael Jordan, I've met this man. I've met this Jesus. I've been in a relationship with this Jesus. I know what it feels like to walk with him, and so do you. If you've come in through Jesus Christ and you've met him, and if you're new here and you haven't met him, then walk with us. We're going to go down the driveway to God's house today. So as you're getting ready to experience God's presence, turn with me to Psalm 84. It's a psalm that's encouraged me, a psalm that's taught me how to to love God, taught me how to see God as the most beautiful and the most wonderful thing that I could ever have. We're going to go through mostly the whole chapter, but we're going to start in verse 1. So Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Now, that's a very interesting way to begin a psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place? Because to say that assumes that he's already been there. To say how lovely is your house assumes that he's seen it. He's not standing at the gate trying to get in. He's been there before. And he said that how lovely is your house. Now, in the ancient world, the house of God was the temple. It was the most beautiful building in all of Israel. And I don't think what he was actually saying is how lovely is the physical building of the temple the house. I think what he's saying is how beautiful and how lovely is the God who lives inside of that house because I've experienced him. I can experience this building and it is beautiful. It is lovely. Look at all these things that we've got. But when I tell people how beautiful is Genesis, what I'm actually communicating is not that we have nice chairs. It's not that we have these little lanterns over here, which are awesome, by the way. It's that when I come to this place, I've experienced God. I've experienced his presence in a way that I've not experienced in a long time. I love this church because of that. And when I tell people about Genesis, I'm not telling them about a building. I'm telling them about the God who inhabits that building. I wrote it down like this. You see, the thing that we love the most will become the most beautiful to us. The thing that we love the most will become the most beautiful to us. Who's the most beautiful woman in the world? My wife. Because I love her. And because my love is so strong for her, she has become the most beautiful thing. I can't even see another woman. And that's the way that our hearts work. As we begin to love something, it becomes the most beautiful to us. 
And for this man, the most beautiful thing in the world was God. Verse 2. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. Do you see what he's saying? His soul, his spiritual life is yearning. That's a strong word. But he doesn't just end with his spiritual life. He says that my heart is crying out. My emotions are crying out. My physical body is crying out for the Lord. He's saying every part of who he is is crying out for everything that God is. His whole life is crying out. And the question that I've had to wrestle with as I've thought about this psalm is, am I yearning for God? Is every part of who I am crying out for every part of who he is? Or am I yearning after other things? And if I'm honest... I chase after a lot of things. I spent like 14 hours this week playing video games with my son. And that's great. I spent time with my son. But if I'm honest, was I yearning for God? And I don't ask that question to shame us. I just say, what is, is God most beautiful to you? And if I'm honest, sometimes God is not. And that's a hard thing for me to deal with. But the psalmist goes on. He says, even the sparrow has found a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my God and King. Now, I love how he brings up a swallow here. I love how he brings up a bird because if you had to think about the most anxious animal you could think of, you think about this bird flying here and there trying to get these twigs and trying to get this straw and trying to make a nest. And her whole heart is preoccupied with, the, with this mission, but yet she, even she can rest and if she can rest, then we can rest. If she can have joy, then we can have joy. Our anxieties and our missions and the things that we're doing, the things that we're gathering, the things that we're doing for our family and our job, don't have to steal our joy because in the presence of God, we can have rest. Why? Because he's most beautiful. See, the whole psalm is about God being the most beautiful thing. It starts in verse 1, the center verse of the entire passage, the thesis verse of the entire passage is God's most beautiful. And when God's most beautiful, everything else just makes sense. If God's most beautiful, you're blessed. It says in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And, and I think about, do I have an ever praising heart? Is my heart constantly singing for joy to the Father? Or sometimes is it singing for other things? Yeah, I told somebody the other day, it's easy for me when I watch a Duke basketball game for me to throw my hands up and say, Yeah! But how many times in worship do I throw my hands up in, in utter delight for, for God? It's a hard question that I have to ask myself. But is God the most beautiful thing to me? Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on a pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now I love this. Baca, it means a place, a dry place. It means a place with shrubs. It means a desert. So that these people who've been in the presence of God, these people who find God most beautiful, can take even the driest desert and make it into a place of springs. And today, if you're in a desert, and if you're in a place that's dry, dusty, old, and stale, and if you don't have any joy, then if you've been in the presence of God, even if you're in a desert, it can be like a tropical rainforest. It can be like an oasis because his presence is better. See, his beauty is the answer to all of our problems. If we find him most beautiful, then everything else just makes sense. It says that they go from strength to strength till they appear before, the God, before God in Zion. Now, after all of that, after all of 
this where he's talking about God's beauty and God's excellence. He says, hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on my shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. And I don't have a lot of time to talk about this verse, but it's a prayer for his country. It's a prayer that everyone would see God as the most beautiful thing. And it talks about their shield, which is their king, who lives in his courts. But yet the funny thing is, is that verse 10 tells us that even the king's courts are a small thing compared to the courts of God. The king's courts are beautiful, but they're nowhere near as beautiful as God's. And that, yeah, we can honor people and then we can, um, you know, look to those people. But if, if our hearts aren't set upon the courts of God, then we're missing something out. We're missing out. So then he ends uh, this section with better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He's not saying that other places aren't good. He's not saying that other places aren't great. But he's saying out of the thousands of places, and that's just a way of saying everywhere, God's place is better. God's house is better. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What he's saying here is that that other jobs are good. Other things that I can do are good. They're useful. They're needed. But I would rather take the lowest position in God's kingdom because that's better than even having the CEO or even having the president or even having whatever job that I could possibly have because my meaning, my worth, my identity are not tied up in those things. It's better to be a doorkeeper in God's house than anywhere else. I can take the lowest position in God's house because it's better. And why is it better? Because God is beautiful. See, that's the whole point of the psalm is that God is beautiful. And if God's beautiful to us, then we won't be able to help but sing. We won't be able to help but throw our hands up. We won't be able to help but worship. But again, the problem is that I don't often find God as the most beautiful thing. I think if we're honest, we all struggle with that. So again, I told you we're going to be talking about gates today. So how does that relate Well, as I'm thinking about this psalm, I'm thinking about the fact that God is most beautiful to this guy because he's seen God. Well, the only way that this guy could have seen God, the only way that he could have seen the house of God in that time period is to go through a gate. You see, the temple sat right in the middle of the country of Israel, and there was a huge gate around it. And the only way he would have been able to experience God is to get through that gate. He would have never been able to experience the presence of God in the courtyard of God without getting through that gate. Ancient people always built gates around the things that they loved, and it wasn't just to protect it, and it wasn't just to demarcate the boundaries. It was to say that a relationship with God is so serious that there's a division between you and he. And I think about it, and as I imagine what an Israelite would have thought back in those days, Living outside of that gate, it reminds me of where I live in South Hamilton. I live in one of the richest communities in Massachusetts. I feel like I'm driving down the streets of Bel Air, like Fresh Prince style. There's all these huge mansions. There's all these places that continually tell me that there's a difference between me and them. Here's poor seminary student who's ate far too much ramen and far too much American cheese. And then... There's these mansions with these large gates that communicate to me that there's a difference between them and I. And in a small way, that kind of pictures the fact that if you're an Israelite standing outside of the gates, that there's a difference. 
that there's something separating you and keeping you from the presence of God. And it's that, that large gate. Those gates. But today, we don't actually have a gate that keeps us out of this place. We don't have a gate, a physical gate. But as the Lord was talking to me this week and helping me prepare for this sermon, he said, all of us have something that's keeping us from the presence of God. All of us have got something that's keeping us from the full relationship that God wants to give us. And the question we need to ask is not, do I have a gate? It's, what are my gates? What are the things that are keeping me from the presence of God? What are the things that are stopping me from having and enjoying a relationship with the most beautiful thing that has ever been, and that's God? For me, that was religion. You think religion is the thing that should bring you into the presence of God, but for me, religion was the thing that kept me from the presence of God. From a very early age, I found out that I could get people's attention by memorizing Bible facts. I would sit in Sunday school, and we had this game that we played where it was like a Bible trivia, and they would ask questions, and I would answer it as quickly as I could because I wanted to prove that you know, I knew something about God. And, and by uh, proxy, I guess, that, that told people that I was spiritual. And I always won. Every single time, I never lost. Like, I was the man. At 15 years old, the pastor realized how infinite my Bible trivia knowledge was. And he started asking me to help him with communion. And I was like, yeah. And in my high school, at 16 years old, I was, somebody said, uh, somebody voted for me that I was the most Christ-like person in my Christian high school. That was a joke. I wasn't the most Christ-like person. To put my name and Jesus's together it was, it was a joke. I was gaining my acceptance based off of what I could do for God, not what he had done for me. I was, as I think back about my life, I, I was using God to get what I really wanted, which was other people's approval and acceptance. I was using him... I was finding him useful, but I wasn't finding him beautiful. And as I stacked up my accolades of religious performance, if I'm really honest, I was the God of my own life. I was using all these religious things, Bible knowledge and trivia and mission trips to Korea. I was using all of that to get what I really wanted, which was to make myself feel important and special. See, my religious obedience was a gate in my life that kept me from the presence of God. And it might not be your gate, but you have a gate. That might not be the thing that is holding you back from the presence of God, but there's something there. Now, that leads to the obvious question. You might say, Kendall, I don't have a gate. I don't have anything in my life. I don't, I'm not, me and God are good. I would say it's easier for me to say that Michael Jordan doesn't exist for you to have a perfect relationship with God. As ridiculous as it sounds, I think we all agree Michael Jordan really does exist. But we need to ask ourselves, do we have a perfect relationship with God or is there something missing? Are we walking with him every second of every day of every moment in every relationship and every single thing that we can do? Are we experiencing all the joy 
that God has for us in that relationship? Or can we admit that there's something there that's holding us back, that's keeping us from the presence of God, from having everything that he wants to give us? Now, surely somebody in this room can relate to this, right? Surely somebody's got to say that, that I've got something in my life that's keeping me back. Some of you might already be thinking about it. It might already be on your mind what it is that's holding you back from experiencing the full presence of God. And if that is you today, and if you know exactly what it is, that's great. Tear down the gate. I can stand with more confidence than Ronald Reagan when he was over there in Germany or wherever else he was. I can say, tear down that gate. Because that's the thing that's stealing your joy. That's the thing that's keeping you from God. Just like for me, it was religion. It was stealing and robbing me of my joy. And why do that if we know that God is better? Tear it down. Get rid of it. But if you're like me, you probably don't know what your gate is. And see, that's the funny thing with with these gates is that you can live for years and years and years and years without actually knowing that you have something. You can admit that your relationship with God's not perfect, but you have no idea what it is that's holding you back. And I had no idea as I walked and walked and walked this way for years. And my heart would be that you would just pray. You would beg God, ask him, Lord, reveal to me what it is that's keeping me from you so that I can experience more and more and more of you. And then when he does reveal that, tear it down. Tear it down because it's going to steal your joy and it's going to keep you from experiencing God. Now, the other objection might be, well, Kendall, I need a gate. You're talking about giving up every single thing that you have, every single thing that you do. That sounds like religious fanaticism. And you're talking about you were a Pharisee back in the day. Well, you kind of sound like a Pharisee today. You're telling me give up everything I've got, sell everything I have. I don't like that. I've seen those people. They're ridiculous and obnoxious. I don't want to be like that. Well, I get that totally because I'm the reason why you probably have felt that way. People like me. I'm the reason why Christianity probably has had a bad name. I, I can echo with Paul that I'm the chief of sinners, and I have been in my life, and I have used God in that way, and that's not what I'm talking about. And if that's you, I just want to tell you three things. First, if relationship with God is the most beautiful thing, if it's the greatest thing, then it's the only logical thing you could pour your life into. If I had infinite knowledge, the world would be a terrible place. But if I had infinite knowledge, I would never invest in the second best stock. I would never invest in the second best vehicle, I would always only buy the very best thing. And if I had infinite knowledge, and if you had infinite knowledge, I don't think we would look at the second best. We'd want the first best. We'd want the greatest thing. Well, we can trust the one who already has infinite knowledge that he is the greatest thing. And it would be actually illogical to pour ourselves into anything other than him. Second thing I'd want to say is that there's... There's always this fear that if I give everything of myself over to God, then I'm going to lose myself. I'm going to lose my personality. I'm going to look like one of those uh, religious people bordering on cult. But if God is the greatest thing, if God is the most powerful thing, then he is powerful enough to keep your personality intact. And as he produces righteousness in you, if you're an artist and sometimes you felt like that, well, I can't give everything I have to God because I'm creative, and that's going to suck away my creativity. God's an artist. God created everything. 
He painted the universe with the most beautiful and splendid and wonderful colors, and he understands you because he made you, but he wants to make you something better. You see, what I think is, and what I've learned about my life is, is that when I follow God, I'm actually more like me. If God created me to be Kendall, which is an interesting mix of things, then I'm actually more like me when I follow God. I'm actually more in love with the things that I do and the things that I am than I am with when I'm with God. And see, when I go to these other things, when I follow after these other things, it's when I become less like me. See, if God designed me, then the only possible solution to all of my problems is to be, follow him. He has the manual. He made me. So whoever you are, whatever you do, God designed you that way. He loves you that way. He made your personality for a reason and he's just waiting for you to follow him so that you can really be who he's created you to be. The last thing I would say is that it's just a, if we hold back, if we hide behind those gates and we, we fear that we're going to lose control, then really it's just a disbelief in the gospel. It's saying that Jesus came to bring us near, but I'm going to hide back here and keep myself far. And I pray that if you've ever had that temptation, that you would just repent. They would just say that God died to bring me near. And whatever it is that's holding me back, I'm going to tear down that gate. The last objection, which is the one that I've struggled with many, many, many times, is I've got way too many gates. As I've been talking and as I've been thinking, I sit here and I look down the corridor and I see gate after gate after gate after gate. My pride, my, my anger, my frustration, my impatience. You know, religion was one of them, but my goodness, I've got thousands of these things. And the, the thing that I want to do is I want to give up. I want to throw my hands up and say, God, I can't do this. You know, sometimes the most consistent part of my walk is that I'm consistently banging my head up against the gate. And I just want to tell you the good news of the gospel today, that there is one gate that separated you between between you and God. There is just one thing that kept you out of his presence, and that was sin and death. And it says in John 10, verse 7, this is what Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So I know this is a paradox. I'm telling you that you have to knock down gates, but yet the only gate that mattered has already been knocked over, that Jesus is the gate. He's the way into the presence of God. And you say, Kendall, how do these two things work together? My marriage is a great example of this. I will never be more married than I am right now. I'm married. No one can make me less married. I can't make myself less married. My wife can't make me less married. I'm married. It's, it's done. But I don't always enjoy my marriage. I'm going to be honest. I'm hard to deal with. I can be a pain. I get on my little missions and I get focused and sometimes you're just going to have to run with me or get out of my way. And if I'm not actively seeing the things that are keeping me from enjoying my wife, then I'll still be married. But my experience in my marriage will be strained. And I think that in church sometimes we, we hammer home the fact that Jesus is the gate. He's brought us into the presence of God. He has helped us enter into that relationship with God. And, and I fully affirm that. But sometimes 
my experience with Jesus and my experience with God is going to be strained when I'm not actively seeking after God. You see, I can always be saved. I can always be in a relationship with Jesus based off what he's done. But if I'm not actively tearing down those things in my life that are keeping me from enjoying his presence, that are improving the quality of my relationship with him, then I'm not going to enjoy him. I'm going to be in relationship with him, but I'm not going to enjoy him. And I guess the heart behind every single thing that I've said today is that God is the most beautiful thing. But the only way you're ever going to see that God is the most beautiful thing is if you tear down your gates. That if you tear down the things that are keeping you from him, you identify them, tear them down, and walk into his presence and just enjoy him. And when you can enjoy God like that, it really and truly is better to be in his presence than a thousand other places. It's life-giving and it's healing. And I can tell you that I've met that man. I've experienced that kind of relationship. And when that happens, amazing things happen in my life. And when it doesn't, I'm frustrated. So that's my prayer for you is that we would see God as the most beautiful thing, that you would tear down your gates. If you know him, tear them down. If you don't know him, pray that God would reveal it. But please Don't leave today with a gate that's keeping you and robbing you of your joy.